0: response to the, the news that Jamie gave to us earlier this evening with regard to his, the necessity for him to return home to his dying father, I would like to make the subject of this evening's talk, Dying and Death. When we look at our existence we see very clearly and obviously it's defined by two poles, birth and death. And between these two poles of existence we move, we breathe, we, we have our life and our activity. And we see in the course of this activity our life itself undergoes change and countless number of ways, and through the very process of life we are faced with, without exception, day in and day out of our lives, the reality and the actuality that death is never far away. And we become aware as we move through our through our life that as we live from one day to the next, it means to some degree or other that the end of each day is one step closer to the end of life and sometimes we won- we wonder we have wondered as children and he- we have wondered as as adults before our existence be- before coming into birth and before our death were we did we exist? Did we have any form? Did we have any being, any sense of person? And we never can know for sure. And so perhaps one view, one feeling, one one idea rests with us satisfactorily for a period of time. And then it may switch and we may look and feel and, and think in another way. And so at times we have found ourselves adopting a shall we say, a a strictly scientific, materialistic viewpoint. One of, there is non-existence, and from non-existence we move into existence, and from existence we move to non-existence. And perhaps we've accepted that, and perhaps at times too we've, we've shifted our viewpoint, and we've shifted it towards a belief, a religious belief in a heaven and a hell and some kind of e- eternity which awaits for us on the on the end of this short life journey and then again perhaps too we've shifted our position again into into some form of rebirth or reincarnation something which gives in some peculiar way some continuity to this existence some kind of connectedness to who we are at the present. So we find ourselves, as were, faced with these different viewpoints, all stressing in one way or other, this is the truth at the end of life. And we may have certain assurances about which one is true, or that perhaps there is another one which is true, but one wonders if one can ever actually know. And so often, of course, we find ourselves facing a a situation of not knowing what happens after, but knowing for sure that there is an end to all that we do experience and are familiar with. At times in this movement through, uh, through, through our life, the thought of the end of life, of death, a- arises for us. It, it becomes a thought, sometimes in a difficult situation, sometimes in a confusing situation, sometimes in whether one wishes to do something. And the mind, when it is in a, a reactive state, and when it is often in a rather unclear condition, say, will we'll say, well, what's the use? It doesn't really matter. We're all going to die anyway. And there's a kind of reaction to life and to the present, and so we draw upon death as a kind of rationale for our relationship to life, for a negative relationship, a negative viewing of existence. And sometimes we experience, too, in our relationship to life, the, we find ourselves adopting some of the real Eastern views. And in a difficult period of time, one can come to the conclusion that life is nothing else but suffering, and, and the suffering takes different forms and shapes as we move through life, but basically it's, it's suffering. And so the message gets generated to us of, of getting out of life, of ending the, the wheel of samsara, of finding some kind of bliss in oblivion. And one wonders if that's coming from a balanced place in a person's heart and mind which views life in that way. who relates to life from a, b- from a background of, of life-denying. And so there are all these views and and all the the variations which go with them, the various theologies and scientific viewpoints which accompany, accompany them. But still, there is for you, for me, for all of us as human beings who walk on the face of this earth, there is birth, there is life as a field of experience, and there is the completion of that experience called death. And certainly, the extraordinary thing is with our heart and with our mind, and particularly with our, with our, with our beliefs, it's a peculiarity that beliefs don't necessarily have to be true, but they can be helpful and supportive that a person may believe wholeheartedly in something with regard to the end of life take strong comfort from that particular belief and the very belief itself whatever that belief is can can act as a kind of comforting agent for the mind in order to make that transition from living to dying to death easier regardless of whether there is any actual truth in the belief itself. And sometimes too, of course, a belief also in our life, and we have to explore and see for ourselves, our relationship to life and to death, a belief also can act in quite the reverse way. That the very belief which one has with regard to death and whatever, if at all, after, can also act against. Instead of relieving fear, which is the experience that many have to go through in the process of dying and death, it actually accentuates it. But still the process occurs. Regardless, in fact, of what we believe and whether or not our belief is a true belief or otherwise. We still pass through this as an inevitable given in the experience of life. And we look around us, and we see the myriad number of human beings, and perhaps some of you, some of us, have had the extraordinary privilege of being with those who have passed through the process of dying unto death. And we've seen in our observation, because you and I have not had this experience, that we have seen in our observation that some have this extraordinary capacity to deal with this reality, this personal reality which we all will undertake. And others have extraordinarily great deal of difficulty. And we wonder what it is, what are the qualities of mind, what is, is it within the person that is ready And what is it within the person which is so characteristically unready with all the pain and fear and anger that 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 can produce? What's going to make the difference for us? When I was here a year ago in this retreat and these are often things which a person doesn't know, you know, when you when you come onto a retreat, often you don't know who it is who is sitting next to you. You don't know anything about her or his background and and the, and the realities, the physical, the mental, the heart realities of the person next to you. And I remember being here last year, sitting in this same place at the same time and perhaps it was only Jamie and I who knew that in the room here, here sitting here a year ago there were five people with cancer the most the majority of the people approximately the same number of this year simply wouldn't wouldn't have known that and and one finds too in such people this tremendous quality which can emerge through a variety of supportive factors and and internal factors which which enable a person to surrender to life in the best possible way that that word can mean. And for that of course you and I in many ways still have a long way to go to understand deeply and inwardly what surrender to life really means, and to, therefore, the the movement and the process of it. (coughs) And we see in our relationship to, to life that sometimes this movement of change takes place rather slowly, rather slowly insofar as as the aging process continues itself, there is the gradual reduction in the energy and the powers of the mind, the use of the faculties of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the touch, and there's a slow but gradual diminishing of these faculties. may have reached their peak, shall we say, in our teens or twenties or thirties. And then, generally speaking, their particular power of, the, of those sense doors and their function in, functions in life gradually are reduced. And is so easily within that process, given the tremendous emphasis on health and beauty in our society and keeping fit, and a certain value of that, but so easily as the years go by we find the change taking place, producing fear, producing this difficulty in accepting. Working with what's in the, working. sorry, our working against what's in the nature of things. And sometimes, of course, and we have known people, where there wasn't even that opportunity where life was arrested at a very young age. And in the arresting of that, of that life, the kind of impact which it had on ourselves. And I remember, as a personal example, when I was, very, when I was young, seven years old, there was a young person And certainly not an unusual story. The young person living next door to me of the same age. And for seven or eight years we lived and played together, spent all our time together, two childhood, two boyhood friends. He went into the uh, police force, came married, had children, and I, in my early twenties, uh, traveled to the east. And the contact, as so often happens, when two young friends separate, got less and less. And basically, our parents, particularly our respective mothers, maintained the contact. And I'd been living on an island, and li- in uh, the Gulf of Siam, and had, had been spending several months there, living in solitude. And just coming down, in the morning when I, with my uh, begging bowl to, to collect the food, my food from the, the little fishing village by the sea, and then would make my way back up into the hills and, and just spend that year just um, by myself. And I walked down to the village one, mo- one morning, and there was a letter waiting for me from my uh, parents, my mother. And inside the letter there was a, a newspaper cutting, And this young friend of mine, who was, uh, by this time in his, my age at that time, about 27 years of age, had been killed while on duty as a policeman, as a police detective. And it was the night of his, it was ten years, when the night he was killed, it was ten years since he had met the girl that he married. They'd been childhood sweethearts, age of 17. And he was going home from the police station. And all the family were there, and all the friends for the party. And it was a police sergeant who had to go to the front door on that 10th anniversary night and say, I'm terribly sorry, your husband has been killed. And I remember sitting in this small fisherman's hut down at the river, at the the edge of the sea there, and just reading this letter, and just as it so often happened, and as many of you surely have experienced, that one never realizes how much love and affection, how much images and memory, is stored in the whole depth of our being, stored through our childhood. And in the years before of already of sustained and intensive meditation, none of that had been touched. There was just the occasional warm memory of this close boyhood friendship. And one letter was like a an internal explosion. An explosion of feelings and love and sorrow and grief. And the, sense of, and the sense of loss. And I re- well remember walking up through the coconut tree grove, and back up into the hills, and sitting up in the hills, and just spending those days, just being with my experience, being with the memories, being with all that the past brings. and we never know in our life and our relationship to life who we might lose and so sometimes the area of dying and the area of of death rather than be regarded as something fearful and 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 threatening, as it very understandably is for us as human beings, in another kind of way, can be a good friend. It can be a good friend about touching places of love and affection. A good friend in remembering the brevity of life and all that's implied in that. It can be a good friend as touching, as Jamie has touched on in the in his talks here, some of those themes which are so obviously and noticeably very close to his heart. The themes of not being judgmental, the themes of being soft, the themes of forgiveness, of acceptance of oneself and others. And sometimes just that the reminder of life, the reminder of death, can be so helpful for us, so useful in helping us to realize and apply and, and practice those kind of themes. And in this, when one, does one, uh, one asks oneself I s- it, since I see this movement of my life, since I see that if there is a flow-on which is uninterrupted, I as a human being have to deal with life, and I therefore have to deal with, deal with the end of life, what can I do in the present which is going to give me the resources, the qualities of mind to die, with peace and clarity. What is going to assist in that process? And to some extent, and it's rather one of the great sadnesses of our society, we've been buffered against death buffered against, dying, buffered against those realities. And certainly in stark contrast to some of the expressions in the Eastern society, where at times there's a more realistic relationship. And it seems so often in our relationship to life, that anything which is suffering, anything which appears ugly, any process of dying or whatever tends to get excluded. And so often it tends, understandably, to be taken out of the home and into the hospital. Often, of course, very much against the wishes of the person whose life is drawing to a close. But still, what in our relationship to life? And one of the things which one hears and sometimes one hears from one's parents and perhaps is a good reminder to all of us is a person may well say it's not dying which I worry about. It's not the actual coming to the end of life and maybe not even the dying itself but it's the thought of leaving you behind, the thought of leaving one's loved ones behind. And this, no matter what about after life, This, for you, for I, is the reality of separation. And the the dealing with the sense of separation in life, and learning to accommodate separation in life, is a necessary tool to die with balance. Learning to accept the various separations in life which you and I experience. One of the things which, too, which seems to make the end-ending process of life. Um, and we experience this, too, very much in our daily life, is the strong wish to bring things to a completion. And so we find ourselves, inside of ourselves, many ideas and interests which emerge, and we say to ourselves, I want to do this. I want to actualize this. So anything which prevents that is rejected death obviously being the major preventer, sickness and pain being another major preventer. And as a result, we find ourselves in our relationship to life fighting against that which stops us bringing our wishes to fulfilment. I hope you can follow, please. We fight against that which stops bringing our wishes to fulfilment. And so we find ourselves in our daily life and in our situation here, very noticeably, of course, planning, planning, planning. Living often in an imbalanced relationship to life because somehow or other we deceive ourselves into thinking that there's an indefinite continuity to this field of experience. And because we look upon the future as some kind of God-given eternity, we imagine to our naivety, to our cost, that we're going to be able to fill in, in the future, all that we can't in the present. And life isn't like that for any one of us. When we're thinking that, and assuming that, and believing that, in any way, we're denying reality. Not one of us is going to be able to complete all that we desire to do and be. And so sometimes the, the awareness of life and the, and the limitations with, within its scope act as a very useful, moderating influence on our mind. We actually bring to mind the sense of the two poles of beginning and end and understand we're making a transition between those two poles. And certainly one notices... Hopefully, that as one grows and as one grows older, a certain sense of, hopefully, of maturity begins to set into our life, where one sees the flow of one's life and the, the middle regions of one's life in the latter period and begins to understand that more as a, a continuum of unfoldment. Let me tell you another personal story, please. Also coming from the time in the East, and I was I was living at that time in the, the monastery, it's a place at that time it was called uh, Wat Tao Court, which was in some 15 hours on the train from uh, Bangkok. And there was an old monk who lived in this temple and had been there some years, a a temple, a monastery for serious vipassana practice, meditation. And each day, he and I, after we took our lunch or the the meal of the day, we would, both of us would walk out, myself as a young monk in my twenties, and he is a senior monk in his seventies, And we would walk out and stand beneath the tree, he on one side of the tree and I on another, and doing a standing meditation. And we'd stand each day from twelve until three in the afternoon. And a closeness and affinity developed through that communication of two monks doing their practice. And at the end of the afternoon he would We'd walk very quietly and silently over to his hut and he'd sit and make me a, a cup of tea. And then the following day we would we would eat together, and the monks all ate together, and then we would go for our standing meditation. And we did this together day in, day out, through the, the dry season, through the monsoon. And then poor Longbut, that was his name, became ill. And he had to reduce his time of standing from two hours a day to from three hours a day to two hours, and from two hours to one hour. He became so ill that he couldn't couldn't do any more standing, and the monks looking looking after him and taking care of him. And it was obvious, as his weight diminished considerably, that he was in the process of dying. And the doctor, in the hospital, and surgeon who was a a friend of the monastery and a supporter insisted that poor Longbut go into the hospital in Nakhonsi Tamrat. Hospital where there was such suffering taking place day in and day out, and many terrorists in that area, and many times I've seen people who had been blown to pieces, who'd been shot in the back and awful suffering unnecessary. And poor Longbut went there into the hospital And after two days, he said, I can't stay in the hospital. I must go back to the monastery. A monk must die in his monastery. And the doctor said to me, you know, I can't possibly let him go. You have to take responsibility. So I, I signed him out and took him back to the hut. And in the last two or three days of his life, I lay there with him, and I always, re- and I had great, enormous respect for him, and he's the only person that I have met that I considered what is in the, t- the tradition of the Theravada tradition is the most noble respect for a human being, and that is to feel that the human being is an Arahant, one who is free, in all its significance and beauty. And it came clear, I remember when lying with him, a conversation which we had had with him one day. And we said to this old monk, Lord Yama, Lord Yama is the, as it were, the personalization for the king of death, for death. Lord Yama is going to come to get to you one day, long you're an old man, he's going to come, you know." And poor Longbut laughed and he said, Lord Yama is looking all over this earth for poor Longbut, and he can't find him anywhere. <laughs> that reveals a depth of insight. And so when lying with him in these last, last two, two days there, so obviously dying. As I lay there with him, and sensing the, the contrast, you know, of health and, and sickness, and it came to the very final morning, and the teacher, Ajahn damodoro asked me to give a talk in the local village. And I didn't want to go, because like Jamie with his, with his father, one doesn't know when the death c- comes. And so Longbut said, Go. So I went to the village, just 15 minutes away, to give this talk. And then, just as I finished this talk, a message came to me from one of the monks. And the message said, Look, Poor Longbut says, Come, the time has come. And I hurried back, and Longbut said, Wei Lao, Ma Lao time has come. And in those last moments, that last period, the senses began to fade out, one by one. And I was holding his hand, and I was lying right beside him, and he said, my hen can't see. Seeing's gone. And then he went to the ears, can't hear, no sound. And I was just holding him and holding the pulse there and through that whole period of time as the, as the end of life came there was no fighting and the pulse quietly, quietly went and he stayed there with his breathing right to the very end. Because of the close friendship, which had developed, <coughs> the monks and the nuns and the novices and the lay people asked me to give the evening talk. And the senior monks sat in the front row, there were more than a hundred of us. And at the very end of the talk, after speaking about my relationship with this monk, I said, this monk, I feel is an arrow hunt something very rarely said of anybody, such respect for this word. And the monk said, put their hands together and said, sadhu, sadhu, well said. And it's, and one of the things which I noticed, and the kind of long-standing impression with this monk and with men and uh, women, is that That complete love of life and that complete devotion to life in its reality, in the living present, and the integration with that and the finding of a certain fulfillment with that reduces the fearful power of death. In our looking, (coughs) and in our observation, in our connection with life, we tend, human beings as we are, tend to make strong differences between life and death, between coming and going. And in bringing to mind this old monk, I feel perhaps today is very if I may say, a very appropriate time to speak of Paul Longbut in his life and to speak of Jamie and who has been to New York and has come back and has continued serving the Dharma and each day has been on call from his mother and now, as you know, flying, flying back to New York and the thing which touched me very much was when Jamie said that his father had, had said, it's all right, had said to his wife, it's all right, I'm ready to go. And that emergence of some understanding of surrender, of inner letting go, somewhere embodies this very spiritual principles which you and I are practicing and developing here. And what resonated so strongly with me in listening to to Jamie and that strong impression in my own life of 12 years ago with this particular monk is Jamie is flying back to New York to a father who is dying from liver cancer. Paul Longbutt died from liver cancer. In this looking into the present and giving, as is asked of us, and asked of us, day in and day out to give full attention to that, it seems to have the extraordinary significance of producing a change in our consciousness. And the change in our consciousness is one which, at the heart level, is rather than as the old, almost warped tradition has said, of life denying, the total heart connection to the present is truly life-affirming. And that life-affirming emphasis to others, to existence, to the creatures, to the environment, in some way or other, in a very beautiful way, enhances each person as a human, and enhances our whole relationship to, to life and to existence. And it's through a life-affirming process, through a love for life, and all that is implied in it, that there is the key to our salvation from fear and death. And it's as though we look at death and we look at the the process of dying with the diminishing of the faculties as somehow or other being contrary to life as though it shouldn't be there, that it's a an absolute unnecessary. But when you and I in our relationship to life find our balance with life, find ourselves with the reality of life, then death is a complement to it. It's an indispensable. It brings a roundedness to life. It brings a fulfillment to life. It's not something against life but something in a very essential and mysterious and awesome way, part and parcel of life. And if we in our life, in our relationship to, to life, can truly find our balance with life, then that balance will be of life with death, beginning with ending. and we will embrace both. Then the whole beauty and the transcendent nature will become so clearly revealed because the two poles of this existence of ours are held, beginning and end. And we're no longer confused by it all. And the key is the living present. And if we can learn and discover what it means to truly live well, there will come in a latter period of our life a sense of having lived well. And if we live well, we can die well. So let us in our days that we are here together out of love and compassion for all those who are passing through life, for all those who are discovering the beauty and the significance of letting go and its transforming quality, and to use our situations here not only for ourselves but for all others so that we can all learn to live and die well. Just as Jamie's father today, via his wife, sent us a message today which I hope none of us will ever forget. It's all right, I'm ready to go. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings be fully in tune with life. Let's just have three or four minute quiet period together, please.